0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. All that you have done in us and on us and for us to make us your own. We continue to reflect on that collection of truth, Lord. Will you give us insight and will you give us hearts that wonder at it? We want to do more than just understand it. Father, we want to wonder at it. Rejoice in it. To not just give thanks, but to be thankful. To not just say with, with words or sing in song, but to actually in in our hearts sense and, and rest in these glorious truths that while we were yet sinners, you died for us, Jesus. While we were yet rebels, you made peace. While we were running, you pursued. This is amazing. It's amazing. Help us to think about it. To understand it and to revel in it. You're a God of great kindness. So make your word clear. Spirit of God, will you will you open up this passage to us and help us to understand it? It's not complicated, but help us to understand it in a way that produces change in us. And and if this is new to us, if if some here this morning have not heard this or have not thought about it, would you make clear what's here? Make clear how it applies to each one of us. And would you draw people to the Son? Show Him to be glorious this morning, Spirit, please. Help us to speak and to think clearly. And in this passage, lift up Jesus and draw us into worship and thanksgiving. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 15, where we find several very familiar parables. Jesus has been traveling with and teaching amongst crowds of people, some of whom are are hostile are opposed to him, some of whom just are kind of clueless. And most recently, he's been among a crowd we saw last week that while following him in some way, they were a crowd with him, so they're following in some way, they weren't actually, really devoted disciples. They needed to hear from Jesus what's required of a person in discipleship. Total allegiance. That's what he says. Total in scope. To- total in, in scope and total in, in scale, in, in rank. By comparison, remember how he used the language of hate to highlight a comparison in either or comparison He calls for total allegiance, and by comparison, that means total loyalty to Jesus, not sharing any allegiance whatsoever with anybody else, even the closest of human relationships. Totally committed to Jesus, or you cannot be his disciple. He says that three times. And then he calls for us all to give careful consideration to that requirement. That's the point of the two short parables that he gives in 28 to 32. Think it through, he says. There is a high cost to be paid if you want to be a disciple. A high cost, but keep thinking it through. It's a high cost that you must pay. So you shouldn't, shouldn't see this and say, man, that's, that's pretty steep. I think I'll not do it. No, you, there's a high cost, and you must pay it. It's the only way you get peace with the great coming king when he arrives, that's the second parable. There is a king who is coming and the only way to make peace with him, to live in peace with him is complete and total surrender. So you must surrender and, and you can get peace. That's the note of hope there. It's not just just an ultimatum that's, that's, that's full of foreboding, but it's, it's an ultimatum that's full of hope too. There is a way to have peace with God. That's that's the benefit of discipleship, of of total allegiance, peace with God. A welcoming into the kingdom with him. The opposite of which is to be just cast out like worthless salt, the last analogy that he uses. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's where Jesus finishes last week. And then chapter 15, look who draws near to hear. The repeated word that makes an intentional connection for us at the end of 14 and the beginning of 15, an ironic connection, Jesus calls for total allegiance. I mean, he sets the bar like way up there. He calls for total allegiance, total surrender, total repentance in faith. And who draws near to listen, to, to hear, to give careful consideration to it? Tax collectors and sinners. That's what we're going to meet here today. We've met them before. They've been in Luke before. Tax collectors in that society in that day were, were kind of like powerful legal thieves. And so they were universally loathed. And sinners, that, that term there, it's not a compliment. It, it would be an insulting term. But Jesus uses it here because that's the, the conversation at the time he's connecting with people, what they're using the term as. And what it means is someone who officially, openly embraces some sort of a, of a sinful lifestyle. They live in it openly, they embrace it openly, often an immoral lifestyle. Tax collectors and sinners, these ones all drew near to here, which creates a great problem for the religious leaders who don't like them. And it sets them to grumbling against Jesus as they see his reaction to them. And so he told them, the grumbling Pharisees, these parables. And really, there are three of them in this chapter. And they're all very similar, so there's a lot of overlap between the three, but the first two are more similar, so we're going to deal with them this morning and leave the third one until next week. So I'm going to read verses, just verses 1 to 10 this morning, the first two parables, and deal with them, and then we'll come back and catch some of this again, and then next week look at the third longer parable, the, the parable of the prodigal son. But let me read chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, the introduction which I've just kind of outlined and then the first two parables and then I'm going to make two observations from those two parables so here's the passage Luke chapter 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them so he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents Than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents." Luke 15. Two observations. Here's the first one. God in love pursues lost people with gospel kindness. God in love pursues lost people with gospel kindness. Both parables, obviously, are concerned with something precious that is lost, a sheep and a coin. They each are distanced or separated from where they need to be, and they are unable to find their way back. They are lost. They need to be found by another, by something outside of themselves. And that's the condition of people, too, which is why he tells these parables. It's the condition of people, lost, which is not meant to be in any way a condescending description. It's just Jesus' assessment of humanity. All humanity, in fact, lost and needing to be found. When Jesus talks about loss, when 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 he puts people in that position, what he means is distanced from and separated from God at the heart level, in a true heart level separation. So, We could be very close physically. We might be in a worship service all the time. We might be reading a Bible all the time or some other religious book of some sort and think that we are physically near God, but at the heart, distanced from, separated from here. That's where Jesus is looking at, at, at the heart, where at the level of allegiance. We are not allied with him. We are not loyal to him, but instead are in allegiance to, are loyal to countless other things, ultimately, finally, to self. This is, this is all of humanity. We all alike, whether we think of ourselves as good, like the religious performing Pharisees, or think of ourselves as, or are told that we are bad, like tax collectors and sinners, all of humanity, all alike, There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are lost, are separated from him. That's where people are from the get-go. All lost. And Jesus welcomed and received and ate with all of them. That's the unique thing being added in here. He's eating with and receiving these ones. The Pharisees had no problem. I mean, you could re- rewind. Weren't we just talking about Jesus at a banquet hosted by a Pharisee with a whole bunch of Pharisee friends? We've seen that a bunch of times. They had no problem with that because in, in their minds, it's appropriate that Jesus eat with, welcome, fellowship with good people. The problem is them ones too. That's what Jesus is adding in here all alike. Across the board, there's no difference. He will welcome, he will receive, he will eat with all people alike. And that is in these parables pictured as a pursuit of them. Notice the pursuit here. This is the second major theme of this. In this first point here, there are lost things that are pursued, chased. A man has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What will you do? And as Jesus tells this, what man of you will, his assumption is that Everybody, of course, of course, of course this is what you do. You leave the 99 and go after the one. Of course. Which does not mean to depict for us, like, neglect of the 99. What, what's assumed here is that he wouldn't actually leave the 99 all by themselves in the middle of nowhere, uncorralled, unguarded. That's how you end up with 99 lost sheep. There's some way that they're protected. It's not about neglect of the majority. What's being emphasized here is care for the minority, for the one. The lost one that leads to, he cares for that one, so it leads to a pursuit of, a search for. He doesn't write off the lost one as the cost of doing business, he doesn't discard it with callous indifference. He searches, into verse 4, until he finds it. Or the point made in verse 8 with the woman and the coin. She doesn't just write off her lost coin. Well, I still have nine. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the room. She searches. It says, diligently. We get a little more detail there. She's doing everything that she can think of to think of where might that coin be. Actually, ironically, providentially, I lost my favorite pencil this week. Before I'd actually started to study this passage, I mean, I knew it was coming up, but I hadn't thought about it to make the connection, I lost my favorite pencil in my study. And I looked everywhere, and then I looked everywhere again, and then I looked in all the places where it could not possibly be, just to see if by chance it was. And then I asked several people, "Have they seen it? <laughs> Why? because i like that pencil diligently diligently pursuing the coin diligently looking for the getting up and walking out to look in all the valleys and all the crags and all the caves and all the briars where sheep might get hung up and might get caught or might meet up with a snake or a lion or a pack of hyenas or something searching for it diligently until he finds it or until she finds it why Because he, she, cares for it. And isn't willing to just write it off. Well, I have 99 left. I've got nine more. I can find other pencils. It is a search driven by love, by concern for, by care for. The obvious point, which is underlined further in verse 5, what happens when he finds it, the sheep He puts it on his shoulders rejoicing, not he beats it cursing to punish it for all the trouble that it caused him. He puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now, certainly in that society, a shepherd might want to do something to keep the sheep from wandering off again. And if you get into all the details of shepherding, sometimes putting on the shoulder had something to do with that. So there, there could be something in there about keeping it from happening again. But what Jesus is emphasizing is the rejoicing piece. He's emphasizing the intimate connection of ancient shepherd and flock. He puts the thing on the thing. It's an animal. It smells bad. Come on. But he puts it on his shoulders. And draws it near. It's around his neck, right next to his face, and he's filled with delight. Because he cares. This is how a person reacts when he's found something that was important to him and he thought was gone forever. There's care here, there is loving concern, and that's what drives risky and diligent searching. It's behind the relieved, intimate joy. And transparently, that's what Jesus wants to communicate, means for us to understand about his interaction with tax collector and sinner. That's why he tells these parables. He receives and he eats with such people, not to mention the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, the tax collectors and sinners, even them. He receives and he eats with them because of care and concern in love so totally unique for them in a society that generally hated them. Seeking out lost ones because he cares for them. This is because God in love, not in fury or in anger to catch and to punish, in love is in pursuit of people. Lost ones that they might be found and brought back to where they're supposed to be, brought back to home. We should pursue people like Jesus does. Is that not the point? He's explaining, this is what I'm doing here. And there is clearly, if if you're one of those sheep that has not yet been found, you, you should understand, this is how God pursues me. But it's written to the church to tell us, this is how we are to be followers of him. This is what it means to participate with him in the harvest. To search out diligently, to seek out, like him, just like him, even ones like that. That is clearly what he means for us to take from this. Like God pursues, we are to pursue all people like, not just those that we think are good or are likely or are already in the church, but to pursue everyone in love and in concern, doing what is necessary, what is most likely as we think diligently. The woman in her house thinks, where might that thing be? Me searching through my study, where might it be? Where might it even not be? I'm going to look there too thoughtfully, carefully thinking what might possibly communicate to this lost sheep what direction home is. Giving consideration to it. Which probably means that we need to befriend people and be around others and be be giving thought to what winsome presentation of of truth looks like. To love them and to seek their good for them. All that's clear, right? So why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Well, various reasons perhaps. We're afraid of the time and the effort it'll take. Or Maybe we're aware of the time and the effort it'll take, and, and frankly, we don't want to pay that. Maybe we don't know what to say. We're a little uncertain as to how to go about it. There there could be a number of reasons, but at least two, I think, come to mind as I think about this text. Things that are in the mind of the Pharisees here and problems that we share, too. So consider this. They maybe us today, maybe you, maybe it's somewhere in you, don't actually love these people. It's clear, the Pharisees, I I could take out the word actually, don't even pretend to love these people. And the connection to us, maybe, maybe we need to ask ourselves Stop, consider, think, do I actually love the people around me? Or rather, like them, they are gripped by, not love, but by an attitude of frustration, anger, disdain towards such people. And really, when it comes down to it, they think they deserve the judgment. like Jonah looking at Wicked Nineveh, we sometimes think, I think, we think they are lost and it's very much their fault. And they have earned all of the bad fruit that they're struggling with right now and they have earned the judgment that is coming. They should get it. That is clearly how Pharisees looked at tax collectors and sinners. And sometimes, sometimes, I think that's how we actually are looking at the world around us. The Pharisee doesn't think these folks should be pursued unless it is for the sake of catching them for judgment. So do you find yourself there sometimes, angry at sinners all around Frustrated by what they've done and the hurt that they've caused, the pain they've inflicted, the corruption to society they bring. Do you find yourself kind of running this through your mind, kind of just uh, angry at them ones out there? Because look, look at what's going on. The, the folly of, of their sin, the, the arrogance of it. The flaunting of it, it, it is, it's codified in America these days. It's it broadcast on every media source. It's in your face. All this rejection of all that is good and right and all, all that we find decent and, and helpful and holy, it, it's ugly, it's out there, it's public, and I know I'm supposed to love them, but frankly, I'm kind of frustrated and angry. Now, I'm asking you to consider, if, that, if that's you, And however I put that, in some ways, it's going to be hard to agree. That's me because I just look pretty ugly. So maybe in a more civilized way, you just kind of find yourself a little bit frustrated or frightened that they are winning and we are losing. That the tide is moving in one direction and, and the country, the society, the neighborhood, your family, whatever, is being pulled. And that's frustrating and frightening. And it hurts. Check that in you. If it's there, check if it's there. Or something like that. If it's there, it may reveal more than you realize. Not just that you are unloving, but why you are unloving. It may show you something. It may show you, do you think that you are, were, found, or that people are found, or that now found you are good and accepted because you shaped up. You found your way back. That's a completely common religious way of approaching God. Finding your way back to Him, coming to Him by correcting what's wrong, coming back, making it right. Maybe within you, think about this for yourself, maybe within you, what's going on there, this is so often, switch context, this is so often what's behind resentment. I think. They should be doing something that I did and they're getting away with not doing it. Follow that? They should be like I did and they're getting away with it. That's why I'm resentful. They're not pulling their own weight like I did. Come back to this context is the frustration that's in you, the, the "uh that's in you, like was in the Pharisees. those ones are not obedient to God like we are. Those ones have disregarded God. I have not. That whole setup notice this carefully. I hope I'm not too far into the weeds here to get you lost here. But notice this carefully. You got two problems. One the evaluation of whether or not they've obeyed relative to me. That's one problem. The other problem is the whole scenario. That by my obedience, by my keeping of the law, that's how I am found. They're lost because they don't keep the law like I do. That's why I'm resentful at them. If they would only shape up, if they would if the tax collector would stop ripping people off, if the sinners would set aside their immorality, then we'd be okay. No, we wouldn't. We'd still be lost. I know I'm asking you to think about something carefully here, something complex. But in at least some of us, sometimes, I can't speak for every one of you all the time, but some of us, sometimes, the resentment, the frustration, the anger, the the lack of love that we feel for them ones out there is ultimately rooted in a misunderstanding of the gospel and of grace and of how I myself was found. We say, apart from the grace of God, there go I. We don't actually believe that, though. And my resentment of that one, my frustration towards that one, reveals it. I am no better than. We all are uniformly lost apart from God's pursuit of us. The Pharisee grumbles. The mindset of the Pharisee is filled with grumbling because he thinks... I have been more, more obedient, more closely following God. They should be too. In reality, we all alike are equally lost and only the grace of God, only the mercy of God pursues us, catches us, and brings us home. If you find yourself I'm still working on on the first main problem that we have in pursuing people. If you find yourself really not wanting to pursue them and finding yourself that part of what drives that is, I don't really love them, stop and think, is it because I really think they should shape up like I did? Thank God that God does not deal with us like that. When we were yet sinners, he pursued us. When we were blind, he came and opened our eyes. We are no better than the rest. We are found only by grace. And he pursued you when you were lost and dead in sin before you shaped up, knowing you never would. And he pursues all lost people before they shape up, knowing that they never will. to join him in that maybe your love for them would grow your compassion for them would grow if you saw them more like Jesus does as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd like you were Pursue them in love, not counting their sins against them. But then, if, if that's going to be the case, maybe we then bump into the second point, the second problem. But won't such non-judgmental pursuit be akin to approving of their sin, of their lifestyle? That's the second concern of ours and of the Pharisees, no doubt. The problem for them... Secondly, that drove their grumbling is that when he receives them in gospel kindness, like he did with everyone else, he embraces them. He sits down to table fellowship with them. He hugs them. He dips his hand in the same bowl with them and says, it's okay. He's approving of them and exonerating them and giving them a free pass on all their evil. How dare he? That's what their thinking is. And sometimes, maybe, that's how we think. We think that friendship towards lack of animosity, lack of disdain, will communicate approval. So I kind of like, I have to be standoffish to show you that I disapprove. Just like Jesus, right? And I want to approve. So that's what they're thinking. At first glance, it may seem like Jesus is receiving and eating with these people and exonerating their behavior. That could be what you could take away from this. Look at that. Well, I guess Jesus doesn't have a problem with that immorality, with that tax collecting, which today, then moving that in today, sometimes then people even in the church extend to be something like, and so I guess we shouldn't either. We shouldn't judge people. By which I mean we should be fine with their sinful choices and be accepting of them, whatever they do, just like Jesus, right? Some look at that and they say, if he sits there and eats with them and accepts it, then it's, it's okay. No, we're missing something. Verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Hear him say what? Well, what had he just said? Connected to this passage clearly by the word here. He's speaking about salt that loses its saltiness and is cast out. And before that, he's urging listeners to pursue the terms of peace with the coming king. For it's too late. Before that, take up your cross and die to self and follow me. And before that, total allegiance. And before that. There's a great feast that can only be entered through the narrow, the single narrow door, Christ crucified. And before that, there's a fire coming on the earth. Repent or you perish. He said a ton. He he said preaching and teaching constantly, what we might in shorthand call the way to actually be made right with God and the need for it. Ironically, what the Pharisees would not listen to, these folks are listening to. They come near to hear that, to give evaluation to it. So in various ways, he is constantly speaking of the the need for repentance and the way that that he can be the way home for them. In loving pursuit, he calls people to repent and find life. He does not set aside their need to repent and find life. He welcomes them so as to have opportunity to talk to them about the need to repent and find life. Which is why both parables end with verses 7 and 10, the sinner repenting. Jesus thinks that they must repent. That we all all alike must repent. And Jesus thinks that kindness leads to repentance. Displaying as well as talking about the loving, merciful character of God. Gospel kindness, love. Lived out, not just spoken of, but lived out. Kindness leads to repentance. If the whole message, the whole message, including sin, Christ crucified, the need to repent, the whole message, if the whole message is present, then kindness is what leads one to turn from the path one is walking to turn to Jesus That's how he pursues people. And that's that's an important clue to us because that's how we are to pursue people to pursue them in love, not not in resentment, not, not eager to judge them, but in love, mindful of the gospel, but gospel kindness, about the offer of hope that's in the gospel, about an attitude of mercy and an attitude of compassion. That's how he pursues them. That's how we are to seek people out. We don't know who or where. But we do know how. We are to seek them out like he did in love with gospel kindness and with a diligence. Looking wherever people might be hung up. Certainly that means that we have to get around people. Certainly that means befriending people. Certainly it means being wise and thoughtful about how to speak to people and how to love people. And certainly that requires of us a commitment of time and resources. But certainly this is what Jesus is about and what he calls us to be about when he says, Come join me in the harvest. As we the the church, as we think about this passage, and even as I talk about it, clearly I'm I'm talking to I'm talking to the Christian here, and there is a lot of in it consideration of them ones. Please understand something. And again, I'm still talking to the Christians here. Please understand something. Them ones are no different than us ones. We we have been found. We have been drawn back in. and So we are in a different spot now. But but at our core, what enables us, if, if we think it through, what enables us to move towards them in a way the Pharisees could not and would not, what enables us to move towards them ones is is to actually believe I, like him, I like her, am a person who was lost and I was found only by grace. He pursued me in love with gospel kindness. And I I stand in the same place now, kind of as the search party of his, out into this place where there's a world of lost, not as a superior, but as a fellow. And if then, for a second, if then you're, you're not one of us ones, if you're not a Christian, not a part of the church, you hear me talking about you, about you, about you, about you, about you, please hear me saying to the church yet again, we are not superior to you. We are not superior to you. Here's our Lord telling us how to approach you and what he tells us is that we're just like you. We're no better than you. He pursued us like he's pursuing you right now in the same way. So the invitation to you is to come and really, is moving towards the second point here, to come and find your joy. This must be understood covered in joy. Here's the second point God's pursuit of lost people is a pursuit of joy, His and ours forever. God's pursuit of lost people is a pursuit of joy, his and ours, forever. Obviously, what we're dealing with here is lost, pursuit, find. It's God pursuing lost people. But the second dominant theme, other than pursuit of the lost, the second dominant theme here is the theme of joy. Verse 5, the shepherd finds it, lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. He comes home, gathers friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. And then Jesus, so in this manner, I tell you. There's the authority of Jesus again, kind of underlining this. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Verse 9, the woman finds her coin. Calls her neighbors, rejoice with me. Verse 10 again, Jesus says, I tell you, there is more, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These two parables take eight verses and five of them have the word joy in it. He can't tell these parables without joy. Twice he even underlines it. I tell you, I tell you. This is joy in the seeker, the, the shepherd and the woman, God, and joy that can't be contained, that is spread out, that, is, that comes to those all around and neighbors and friends. This is a searching and a finding that is covered in joy. That, that's clear from these two parables. That's what is. We can't miss that. We should note it. And then we should check ourselves because there's something missing. Really, there is something large missing if we talk about all of this seeking and finding, searching, finding what's lost, bringing it back. If we talk about the gospel and we do it in ways that miss the idea of joy, we can talk about it as a legal transaction, justice satisfied. Think about all these words we can use sin paid for, atonement, guilt removed. Wrath of God removed. God, here's a big word, propitiated. Complicated word used in the Bible. What does it mean? Anger or wrath satisfied. The fire of God's fury coming, needing to be turned away. Yes. All that terminology is in the Bible, even in recent passages. And that's what's going on at the the core of the gospel. That we, as human beings, all of us alike, sinners before God, judgment of God coming, and what Christ does on the cross is step in between us and that judgment and bear it. And so the wrath of God does not come to us, but is removed from us. Yes, absolutely. It's not less than that. But think about all that language it's pretty heavy it's pretty ominous and it's all about removing it's all about taking away it's all about no more well then what many of us we think of the gospel only like that we think of we think of the heavy we think of the 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 wrath of God turned away, the atonement for sin, the removing of judgment, And, and then what? Not less than that, but there is something large and important next. God has not left a stoic blank slate, a judge that now looks at the law as satisfied Okay, let's move on. I don't care anymore. He is left rejoicing. Think about that. It leaves him this seeking and finding. It leaves him, it leaves all of heaven Rejoicing with God. If we haven't understood all of this as terminating in a relentless rejoicing, we have not actually got it. This all again and again and again and again and again, leads to rejoicing. Why is that? What's going on here that generates such broad joy? Not just justice, joy. The way of putting it is, what's going on here Why is salvation joyful, not just for the one getting saved, but as is emphasized here, for the one who saves and for those who are onlookers to it? For the one being saved, obviously there is joy here that goes far beyond wrath being removed because with the wrath gone, what is there then to participate in? The feast. The feast. fellowship with God that is unhindered and unbroken and untainted. It is a kingdom that is delightfully experienced. This should be central to every conversation that we have about the gospel, every type of, of gospel-driven speech, every time, of, every time we, we think about it, gospel kindness, we should be including in that Not just wrath removed, but so that you can be brought into the place where you meet with God and are satisfied forever. It can't be only that because we can't turn it into there's nothing about sin, there's nothing about wrath, but we can't stop there. We have to go on as to what then comes. What then comes is that we are brought into the place where we experience what we're made for. Let your mind run with that and thrill at it. What we are talking to people about, what we are offering to people, what is offered to a person who is lost is is home. To be brought in, seated, and satisfied forever at a table that is filled with abundance and enjoyed in the presence of the one who is good with people, in community. It is, it is what our hearts always long for. Always. To see this one, this God, not as a judge, but to see him as a savior and then forever as your friend, What our hearts long for, what we're made for, and what is being offered. That's what a person who is saved has to rejoice over. And it's what the heavens are partying over when they rejoice with God at the repentance of a sinner. He has grown the kingdom for which we are glad. And here is one. You can see the heavenly host with God looking at a person. Here is one who is a trophy. That him herself is a trophy evidencing the presence of a champion. God. Here is one, a champion who worked a great miracle, who broke the powerful hold that sin had on us, (laughs) that chased us down in love, grabbed us and brought us back. This one has done it. All of heaven looks at the God who saves and rejoices at his power displayed, at his wisdom displayed, at his glorious grace displayed. Here, evidenced in yet another person brought back. And that's why God himself rejoices at the repentance of a sinner because he has shown himself, which is what he made all the creation for in the first place, to display himself to show how good he is and wise he is and gracious he is and powerful he is. Heaven is not a place full of people who found their way home. It is a place full of people who were running and the God of glorious grace chased them down and grabbed them and brought them back to their great delight and for his honor. Here is someone, here are some people that he regarded as precious, his image bearers. He made us and cares more for us than he does all the rest of the creation because he made us in his image. He finds people precious. And when we were alienated from him and estranged and stiff-arming him, We know what it's like because we, we have had people that we have loved and have been close to who have rejected us. And in some way, his heart was, if you will, bruised. And his honor was tainted. And here's this treasured creation torn from him, distorted and marred and deceived and believing lies about him. And then he stepped in and fixed it all. It is a great kindness that he has done for us. And it is marvelously powerful and wise. He could have scrapped it all and started over. But he fixed it and made it new again. And it is all due to his moving, to his pursuing in love. This human being restored by God it is cause for God rejoicing as he shows off himself and delights in reclaiming that which he loves and it is cause for heaven rejoicing for all of the kingdom to rejoice as we see something unique yet again about the character of God and it is cause for me the lost one found to rejoice because I'm the one who's the object of all that goodness This pursuit of people with the gospel, it is start to finish over all of it. It is a joy hunt. It is a joy hunt. He is good. He alone is good. And when He saves, it is for His own pleasure and joy and for our pleasure and joy in him forever we need to remember this and as we follow Jesus like this pursuing those around us we need to carry this this joy hunt we need to carry it both in our lives and in our demeanor such that we actually look like and, and seem like we know something about joy, and we need to talk about it. We need to carry it on our lips so that what this all is does not sound like just some legal transaction that, that leaves someone, I guess, right, but not really very happy. We need to show it with our lives and, and proclaim it with our lips This is the way home. And what it is, is this is the path to your joy. I found that. Look, you can too. This is what we proclaim that God in Christ saves people to their joy forever. That's a great message. It's a great message. And the wonderful thing is that it's true. It's actually true. It's what God is doing. It's what he's done. If you're a Christian, it's what he's done in your life and what he's doing still in the world as he continues to pursue people. Not to get them, but to delight them. an amazing thing and this is the god who reigns the god that we serve the god who saves sometimes i think about that and i just i can't hardly believe it because i find in myself strong pulls towards towards right right And when I move past that and see what, what's on the other side of right is delight, I can't hardly believe it sometimes. So if you're like me there, l- let yourself run on past what's r- what's just only right and realize that that all of this is for endless joy for you with him forever. That's good news. When I think like that, I am much more inclined to talk about it. Let me pray. Father, I probably left out five things that you need to fill in now for certain people. Please do so. whatever I missed, will you, will you carry this point home nonetheless? That you are a God who pursues people in love. You don't pursue them ignoring sin, but you pursue them so that sin can be dealt with and joy can be experienced. We all alike need that. There is no difference one to the other. We all alike need it. Those of us here who have experienced it, would you cause us to rest and rejoice in it and be thankful for it? Would you reduce in us what is essentially a a proud resentment sometimes, an unloving attitude sometimes? Would you reduce that in us, drive it away, And would you turn us in love towards you and then towards others around us? Would you pursue other people through us, please? Will you give us connections? Will you give us friendships? Will you give us grace to find favor in the eyes of some and to to love some in particular, to, to build particular friendships that are real, that are honest? and that are used of you to delight people forever to the praise of your glorious grace. Use us, please, in that process. Use this church in that process. There's a great harvest going on, and we really don't, we really don't just want to hear about it and watch it. We would love to be a part of it. And so please engage us in this, this great work. In whatever ways are right for us, individually and corporately, whatever ways are right, we put that in your hands. But we pray that you would use us. That as you pursue people, that you would use us in the search party. You prepare our hearts, give us the right attitudes, eliminate in us all arrogance, and 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 make us a lover of people and a lover of you and 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 joyful. So would I put this in your hands and just say. Help us, use us, build your kingdom for your joy, for our joy, forever. Thank you, Lord. Amen.